Remain standing for our gospel lesson and also our sermon text taken from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Again, give your ear to the gospel of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As far as the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son, Jesus, the one in whom you are well pleased. Lord, we pray that as we consider him today, that you would work by the spirit that you have given him, the spirit that you have given us to conform us into his image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So Epiphany, we talked a little bit about last week. Epiphany is a short church season that is about the revelation of Christ's identity. We read those moments in the Gospels uh, when we are especially allowed to look behind the curtain, as it were, and to see who Jesus really is. There is something of a revelation of the person of Christ in these passages. Who is Jesus? This is really the primary question that the gospel writers are seeking to answer. Who is Jesus? I mean, this is certainly the the most pressing question of many of the people that we find in the gospels. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees ask, Who can forgive sins but God alone when Jesus heals and forgives the paralytic? Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? The disciples ask as Jesus calms the storm. When he is on trial at the end of his life, Pilate inquires, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus himself quizzes the disciples, asking them, Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the central question in the Gospels. Indeed, it is a central question that every person, past and present, must answer. Who is Jesus? And throughout history, many different answers have been given to this question. He was a a good moral teacher, a philosopher, a false teacher, a criminal, a mystic, a madman. There are many opinions about this person Jesus Christ. But the wonderful thing today about today's passage is that as we look at Jesus' baptism, we have testimony from God the Father himself in an audible voice about who Jesus is. We learn about baptism. Baptism is all about identity and identification. And as we learn about Christ's baptism, 
we will learn something about our own identities and identification as well. It's a very clarifying moment as to who Jesus is and who we are in him because God himself gives testimony about Jesus. Who is he? What does God say? Look at verse 16 with me. It says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven came saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These few verses actually say quite a bit about Jesus. You notice it says that he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. This is how John the Baptist in John's Gospel receives confirmation that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Anointed One. John says that he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In Old Testament times, people were anointed. They had oil poured over them when they were called to certain offices, especially kings. For example, when Saul became the first king of Israel, Samuel the prophet anointed his head with oil. Same thing with David and others. This was done to show that the king of Israel was chosen by God and empowered for the kingship. It was a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon him so that he could rule as king. Likewise, priests, when they were consecrated to office, were washed and anointed with oil. And rarely, but still, prophets were likewise anointed before entering into their office. But the people of Israel and all of these anointings looked forward to that promised individual who would be not merely a Messiah, a anointed one, but the Messiah, the anointed one. The one who would be anointed not symbolically with oil, but truly by the Holy Spirit himself. One who would be supremely set apart and consecrated by God to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. The one who would deliver them and us from all of our enemies and who would pour out God's Spirit on his people. This is why John, just a few verses before our passage, would talk about the mighty one who is coming, who would baptize God's people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As we see the dove of the Spirit descending and staying on Jesus, we see that Jesus is that one. Jesus is the hope of the Messiah. His ministry was one that the prophets foretold. He would come in the power of the Spirit and open the eyes of the blind and make the lame to walk and raise the dead and preach good news from the, for the poor. This anointing of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove was the formal inauguration of Jesus into his ministry as the true Messiah. Jesus is that hope. But why does the Spirit descend on him in the form of a dove. If all throughout the Old Testament, uh, prophets and priests and kings and others who were anointed had, had oil poured over their head, why doesn't it say, well, the, the Spirit descended on him like oil? 
Well, Matthew is actually telling us something else about Jesus. The places in Scripture where you have these images of the water and the dove coming together are all places in Scriptures of creation. When God makes the heavens and the earth in Genesis, he tells us that the Spirit hovers over the face of the waters. It's a word um, that describes a bird brooding over its nest. The Spirit hovers over the waters like a dove, as it were. Or when God remakes the world after the flood and bringing Noah and his family through the flood, Noah sends out the dove to hover over the waters and finally come to rest on the new creation that God has made. In bringing these images together, Matthew's telling us that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he is the beginning of a new creation. In a world that is stained and marred by sin and disease and war and famine, all of creation is longing for God to make all things new, and Jesus is the beginning of that new creation. He is the Messiah. He is the beginning of the new creation. And now we hear God the Father himself speak, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the testimony of heaven. Jesus is no mere man. He is the eternal Son of God. The one, John tells us, who is at the Father's side and with him and is God himself. He's the one in whom the Father delights, the sum and source of all goodness and all perfection. Eternal God come in the flesh. What Matthew has told us in the opening chapters of his gospel, he reiterates here, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And if it were possible, there's more. The Father's testimony about Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, is actually a, a compound quotation from the Old Testament. That first part, this is my Son, my beloved Son, comes from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 7, where God declares of His Messiah, you are my Son, ask of me, And I will make the nations your inheritance. You will rule over them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, the Father says that he has made Jesus the ruler of all the nations of men, and that the Father has committed all judgment into the hands of his Son, Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom all kings will bow, His reign of righteousness and peace will know no borders, and he is the one to whom every person will give an account on the last day. That second part of the sentence, with whom I in whom I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah chapter forty two, at the beginning of God's prophecies about his servant, the one who will bring forth justice, who will open blind eyes, release the prisoners. The servant in Isaiah is the one who always does what pleases God, and he will make atonement for the sins of God's people. Jesus is the eternal God, come in the flesh. He is the son of David, the righteous ruler of all the nations on the earth. He is the judge with whom we all will give an account. He is the beginning of the new creation. Many, many answers have been given to this question, who is Jesus, by many different people. But the testimony 
from heaven is that Jesus is God for us. Jesus is God for you. He is not a moral teacher only. He's not one among many. He's not a philosopher. He is, he is our God. When we understand who Jesus is, who God the Father says he is, we will come and worship and bow down and adore him. Jesus appears on the scene and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And where does God say all of this about Jesus? Where is he? He is actually still dripping wet with the waters of the Jordan from a baptism of repentance. Look at verse 13. In verse 13 it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he allowed him. Why did John try to prevent Jesus from being baptized? Well, John knew, as he testified about him earlier in Matthew 3, that Jesus is the mighty one who was coming. He knew that Jesus was the one who would give the true baptism in the Holy Spirit and with fire, the the baptism that John's water baptism of repentance merely pointed to. Jesus was the Messiah that John the forerunner merely pointed to. But even more than that, John knew in his preaching that his baptism was one of repentance. The people, when they came and they listened to John, they would come and be baptized, it says, confessing their sins. In our story here, Jesus confesses no sins. Jesus has no sins to confess. Why, John says, have you come to my baptism of repentance? No, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. Thus, Jesus says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I have come, Jesus says, to be the servant of the Lord, the one who always does what pleases the Father. And it pleased the Lord, as it says in Isaiah chapter 53, to crush him. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 10. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It's Isaiah chapter 53, 10 to 12. The sinless servant of the Lord pleases God as he identifies himself with God's people and makes atonement for their sins. The servant comes, yes, to open the eyes of the blind, yes, to preach good news, yes, to make the lame to walk, but also to bear others' sins and intercede for their forgiveness. Jesus, in other words, knows that his baptism in the Jordan is a beginning. It is a picture of his baptism on the cross. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. 
there on the cross, Jesus would be fully identified with sinners and bear the wrath of God and sink down into death just as he had gone down into the waters of the Jordan. But just as he came up from the waters, he would also rise from the dead and receive commendation from heaven itself. Paul says in the book of Romans that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. On the cross, God would make him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is a picture of that reality as Jesus is baptized on behalf of those he came to save. He has no sins of his own to confess, but he identifies himself with the people of God so that he may stand in place of them and bear our sins on the cross. What a beautiful thing it is that it says that coming up out of the waters, behold, the heavens were opened to him. The heavens, the fellowship and presence of God, which had been closed to man since Adam and Eve's sin, were opened to Christ when? As he stood in the place of sinners. And as you stand in Christ, the heavens are likewise opened to you. The point is that Jesus' baptism identifies him with us. And our baptisms and our faith in him identify us with him. That is what our baptism means. We are baptized into Christ, as Paul says in Romans 6 that we just read a moment ago. We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a rite that expresses the union that we have with Christ by faith. God sent his own son Jesus so that he could become our brother to us. As it says in Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And in becoming our brother, Jesus has shared his sonship with us so that God, his father, can be our father. We have been adopted, Paul says in Ephesians, as sons and daughters in him. And God is pleased with all that is in him. And you, as you have faith in Christ, are in him. In and of yourself, there would be nothing for you but condemnation. But in Christ, the father's pronouncement is yours. You are a beloved child in whom God is pleased. Likewise, we are told in the New Testament that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away and all things have become new. Christ is the beginning of the new creation and if you are in him, you likewise are a new creation. Your old sins and identity no longer define you. What a comfort to know that those sins that have haunted our consciences for our entire lives are no longer us. We have died and risen in Christ. What a comfort to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where sickness and pain and death will be no more. To know that this body and all of our loved ones in Christ will be raised as surely as Christ has been raised, as surely as Christ came up out of the waters, we will come up out of our graves. If you were baptized into Christ, we read, you were baptized into his death. 
Therefore, Paul says, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. If you have faith in Christ, if you have been baptized into Christ, you also should consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus. And that same spirit that empowered Jesus for his ministry at his baptism now breaks the power of sin and strengthens you to live for him. To be that servant of God who does what pleases the Father and lays down his life for others. In Christ we have become kings and priests to our God, as it says in Revelation. We offer our whole bodies, our whole lives as sacrifices to God. And as Christ reigns in us, his kingdom is established in the earth. As we consider the identity of Christ proclaimed in his baptism and the fact that Jesus came and was baptized so that we who have faith in him might be identified with him, we learn not only about him, but we learn something about our identities in Christ as well. All of these imperatives, all of these commands throughout the New Testament are not simple, bald commands. They're not just a simple checklist that God gives us to do. But they are a call to live in light of who God has made us to be in Christ. God constantly says in the New Testament, this is who you are. Now live like it. That's the whole structure of, of entire epistles. Paul will spend the first half of Ephesians giving us all of this theology about who we are in Christ. We've been redeemed through his blood. We have been adopted. We have been given the spirit. We are made into the temple. And then he will spend the entire second half of the book telling us, now live in light of that. Live like you are a son or daughter. Approach God as though he has favor towards you. Lay down your life as though you are the servant of God because in Christ you are. This has massive implications for how we understand our relationship with God. We are not earning a spot in God's family by working hard, but as we even studied this morning in the Heidelberg Catechism, um, it rightly teaches us that our good works are a response of gratitude to what God has done for us in Christ. It has massive implications for the way that we raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, the way we disciple one another. As we're raising our kids, we, parents, we should teach our children who they are. We should echo the Father's declaration of Jesus here. We should tell them, you are forgiven. You are adopted. You are a child of the King. God loves you. And we should teach them to live accordingly. We should discipline them in line with the Christian life and nurture their faith into maturity. Often, kids growing up in Christians' homes can feel like they are put on uh, the spiritual equivalent of a treadmill, that they are just told to um, make it, to work, to make it, get there, and you can get exhausted. They're given the impression that everything in the Christian life is something that is attained. And while following Christ can be difficult, we're told to count the cost. 
of discipleship. We're told to take up our cross, but neither us nor our children nor those that we disciple should doubt that the Christian life is a gift of grace all the way down, all the time. It has massive implications for how we relate to one another as we see one another as God's beloved children, as those who are filled by the Spirit, as God's dwelling place by the Spirit. We learn to edify one, one another. We learn to live uh, in peace with one another. That's why it's so important to know Christ's identity, uh, not only because of the great comfort that it gives us, knowing that this is the one in whom we put our faith, the eternal God, the servant of the Lord, the king of the universe, but also because it tells us about ourselves in him and it gives us our blueprint for how we are to live amongst ourselves, within our families, and with one another. So may God give us grace to constantly meditate on the identity of Jesus and draw comfort and strength from that and also to learn how we ought to live in the Christian life.